To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Note, this is a true crime story. Character dialogues are direct quotations. In an effort to accurately represent sources, some cited opinions are depictions of a past social sentiment and do not represent the beliefs of the content creator. In addition, this contains violent and dark subject matter. Listener discretion advised. A pimply-faced, gawky boy of 18 who burglarizes stores to steal cookies sat in the county jail crying last night because the sheriff told him he is suspected of the murder of little Anna Polterra. Welcome, dear listener, to LA 1909, a true crime podcast uncovering a city's history through a murder mystery. The case is that of a young girl, a working-class immigrant's daughter, found murdered, an all-American LA sheriff, and a parade of suspects. A Los Angeles homicide investigation will be reconstructed using early 20th century records and newspaper articles. Today, a reenactment of a hand-recorded interview between Sheriff Hamill and prime suspect Ben Elliott. We dig deeper into these characters' pasts and provide additional history and context for the early 20th century LAPD. Episode 5, A Spirit Armed. Officers fear. If the public becomes aware of the apprehension of a prime suspect in Little Anna's brutalization, the alleged killer would be subject to a lynch mob. The youth, being secretly carted to the county jail, is the elusive Ben Elliott, wanted for a series of burglaries and apprehended at Redondo Beach after attempting to flee in a stolen rowboat. In order to throw some more light on the question as to whether Elliot had any connection with the case, with the sheriff's permission, detectives from the central station will visit the county jail prisoner in company with an expert dentist. Their opinion? That the marks were made by a young man. They say that the indentations might have been made by a man as old as 30 years but that it is more likely that the teeth were of a boy about 20 years old. Consequently, it eliminates all old men from the search. Sheriff Hamill keeps the reporters from his initial discussion with Elliot. After a lengthy private interview, the press is finally invited in. Elliot was sitting in a straight-backed chair in the middle of the room at the jail. He looked as if he had been crying. There was in his attitude a curious, unhealthy languor, peculiar to boys who are addicted to bad habits. His conversation with the sheriff had evidently soothed him, for Mr. Hamill had talked to him very gently. The boy's face was lighted with a smile of wistful sweetness. Well, Ben, you have been camping out some, haven't you? Yes, sir. You would camp out all night... Then leave early at four o'clock in the morning before anyone was stirring? Yes, sir. I always found that is the best way. And if you happened to see a canvas that they were using for fumigating a fruit tree, you saw no harm in using it to keep you warm at night? No, sir. It didn't trouble my conscience. And if you needed a blanket, 
You went into a store and took one. Yes, sir, but I I made a mistake and took two when I only meant to take one. What names did you give the camps you had? I didn't call them nothing. Why, Ben? You were no kind of Dick Turpin. Why didn't you give your camps names? Oh, I I never read dime novels. He had been camping around the vicinity of this murder for six weeks. He first had a camp up the river. Then he moved down toward Glendale. His last camp was near the cemetery, northwest of Tropico. He left there, he said, at four o'clock on Tuesday morning. Ben, I believe you are telling me the truth. No use doing anything else for anyone in my position. He recounted his movements toward Redondo, admitting to the rowboat theft. The sheriff informed the boy. His boat was discovered six miles from the shore. Elliot laughed. Gee, was I that far? I was afraid that they might kill me if I came back here, so I took this boat and started out to sea. I I left my camp at the edge of the Tropico Cemetery at 4 o'clock Tuesday morning, a week ago. You left for the beach at 4 o'clock in the morning. Seemingly unaware of the date's importance, Elliot just nods. The night before that, you camped at the cemetery? Yes. I suppose you call that silent camp. Aw, well, don't make too much of a farce with this. Elliot says... He came to California from Lemoore, North Dakota, last January. He came for his health. At first, he lived at Tropico, in the family of a Mr. Bennett. Finally, Bennett left, and the boy was left to care for himself. He says he wandered around, trying to get work, and finally became very hungry. At last, he entered a store at Tropico. He got in at the rear door, and took some bananas and candy. The next time he went into the same store through the transom. On this occasion, he got a little cash. I don't know how much. They ought to know better. He jerked his head toward the proprietor of the store, P.H. Davis, who came to the sheriff's office to identify him. I only took what I needed. He admitted, however, that he plundered Carpenter's tool chests, a clasp knife and a gun, and two blankets and more cookies. The sheriff referred to the boy's suitcase, which was found jammed in under the Glendale store. The sheriff remarked that it must have been hard to put it there. It was awful hard. There are not many fellows who would have done it. What did you do all of this for? Just because I wanted to keep going. I couldn't get no work. It's pretty hard to get along in this country. You're not a bad boy, Ben. I try not to be. You just went in the first time and found it easy. I only entered stores when I was hungry and needed something to eat. Why didn't you ask Mr. Bennett? I wouldn't ask him or my folks. I had come out here to make my own living, and I wanted to do it. After the arraignment, B.F. Elliot, the father, said that the whole affair was a great mistake. He acknowledged that the boy is guilty of robbery, but he asserts that the beginning of the whole trouble was caused by the boy associating with evil companions. He is only a schoolboy, and I cannot attribute his downfall to anything but evil associates. Back in his hometown, he was considered one of the best boys. Back in the Dakota Territory, The 65-year-old Elliot was known as something of an exemplary and ethical man. B.F. was trained as a master mason in 1866 
two years after his honorable discharge from the Great Rebellion. His mother was Mary Lincoln Elliott, a cousin of President Abraham Lincoln. Before the age of 14, B.F. left the comforts of home behind and cut into the big school of life, as he liked to say. In 1861, just shy of service age, Mr. Elliott enlisted as a drummer in the Union Army. He would eventually pick up a rifle and serve three years in Company E of the 29th Indiana Infantry, with whom he would fight in the bloody Battle of Chickamauga. In the clash, literally thousands were slain, and only 14 would survive. The young BF would walk away unscathed. By the time of his death, he would be the last Civil War veteran, as well as the eldest and most senior Mason in Lemoore County. An avid lodgeman, the senior Elliot not only had Masonic training, he was also a member of the Odd Fellows and the Ancient Order of United Workers. For a time in South Dakota, he was treasurer of Woolworth County. He moved to North Dakota in 1894 with his wife Evelyn and toddler son, Benny. The young Evelyn would be taken from the Elliott family far too soon. One night, while visiting her parents in South Dakota, a lamp was overturned, erupting into flames. Evelyn rushed into the room to subdue the fire and was horribly burned. She succumbed to her injuries a few days later at the age of 31. The young Benny was just nine. After the hearing tomorrow, Mr. Elliot will leave for his hometown, where he has an established business. He says he ought to have gone back several days ago, but that he could not leave this section until his son had been found. He was very much affected. When deputies searched the boy upon his arrest, he appeared to be heavily armed. On his person were appointed carpenters all, a revolver, and a clasp knife. The sheriff sets the sleek pistol on the table. Where did you get that? In a Glendale store. It was just lying there, useless. The sheriff laughs, then picks up the awl. Ben, I'm going to keep this as a sort of souvenir of you. Well, you better. It's a mighty handy thing. Eyeing Elliot, the sheriff handles the clasp knife. You've been giving this knife pretty good use, Ben. The youth grins. What have you been doing with it? Aw, oh, whittling and things. Used it for a knife, fork, and spoon. All eyes are glued on the boy. The officers and Glendale residents recognize the true line of questioning had begun. Ben, did you hear about the killing of a little girl over in Griffith Park? I read about it, yes, sir. When did you first hear of it? Uh, day before yesterday, at the beach. Did you know this girl? No. I never knew anything about her. You know where her body was found. Have you ever been in that vicinity? Oh, two or three times. I was over there once with a party, once with a, a friend from home, and once alone. That was about two months ago. Did you know that, in a way, in the newspapers and all, it was intimated that you might have had something to do with this murder? Yes, sir, I heard that. Well, what did you think about it? Well, I thought somebody was a big fool, but... Of course, it was a kind of natural conclusion, considering my disappearance. The sheriff asked him if he was hanging anywhere about the scene on either Saturday, Sunday, or Monday night last. 
evidently referring to some recent incident. Perhaps the finding of the girl's books and lunch? I was at the beach. With that, the interview is practically over. Though he answered questions about murders and burglaries, he seemed more interested on the sheriff's promise to give him a good beefsteak than in any other topic. The boy's naive simple nature and direct honesty of his replies convince the sheriff that he is not the fiend who bit and mauled and tore this little girl's body. Born to a family of pioneer Angelinos in March of 1865, one month before the Confederate surrender to General Grant, William Billy Hamill was a buttoned-up line walker, practically born with a badge on his breast. Elected Los Angeles Sheriff twice, Hamill served from 1899 to 1902, plus an additional seven years after his re-election in 1907. As the new century began, police officers on the final frontier viewed themselves as a new breed of law enforcers, separate from the bounty hunters and rangers of the past. The average Angelino was armed with a blade or a pistol, or a couple of each. Fiends, thieves, street hustlers, cattle rustlers, and worse lined the roads, often brazenly committing crimes, not openly fearing the state or the law. Their only real concern was incurring the wrath of a swift boiling mob justice. But the growing accessibility of electricity, telephones, radios, and automobiles provided new means for lawmen to round up the final desperados of the nearly bygone era. Sheriff Hamill served at a time that the department was not only developing technologically, but the makeup of the police force was progressing as well. In 1899, Hamill appointed the first black Los Angeles Sheriff's Department deputy, J.B. Loving, who apparently lived up to his name. On Loving's 54th birthday, jail trustees surprised him with a rosewood humidor brimming with cigars. The card read, in appreciation of Major Loving's treatment of prisoners. Loving would be ousted after the sheriff's initial departure from the office, but would be immediately reinstated upon Hamill's 1907 re-election. Additionally, LA's first female police officer, Alice Stebbins Wells, enlisted in 1909 while Hamill was sheriff, and Margaret Queen Adams, Hamill's sister-in-law, became the first female deputy sheriff in Los Angeles County when Billy offered her a job in the department. She would only accept if the sheriff promised to deputize her. Adams was awarded badge 196 and would be buried with her six-pointed star. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Hamill's local connections ran deep. George Gard, who served as sheriff through 1885, was married to Hamill's sister, while another former department leader, and LA's first Latino sheriff, the remarkable Martin Aguirre, was his lifelong best friend. All five foot six of Aguirre loomed large, 
the 120-pound enforcer, known for his good humor and marksmanship with a blade, never seemed daunted by perhaps his most recognizable characteristic, his one eye and scarred socket. As young boys in LA, Billy and Martin spent days cutting it up, making fun when they couldn't find it. One afternoon, they plugged a portion of the city's aqueduct, forming a concrete pool that they and other neighborhood kids could enjoy. On another occasion, while the boys shot arrows skyward, Aguirre searched the heavens, and a descending arrow plunged straight into his cornea. Still, he'd go on to enlist in the volunteer fire department, rescue 19 citizens from the 1886 floodwaters, serve as sheriff, and then, after new department leaders were elected, he'd honorably perform duties as a deputy under three men he had once commanded. In January of 1909, just a few months before the Griffith Park murder, at a New Hall saloon in the less regulated northern Los Angeles County, John Allen, better known as Arizona Jack, had drunkenly pulled two pistols on the saloon keeper, emptying the bar and alerting the constable. Arizona Jack, born and raised in Macon, Mississippi, would then shoot the arresting officer, who had been his close friend. Downtown Los Angeles was informed, and Sheriff Hamill climbed into his new automobile, along with now Deputy Sheriff Aguirre. At the time, there were fewer than 30 deputy sheriffs, resulting in Hamill having a highly active role in the field himself. The auto allowed the men to cover more than 200 miles, twice thwarting Jack's escape. Decades ahead of his time, Hamill would deploy Arizona Jack's boyhood hound to hunt him down. The lawmen tracked the outlaw to a barn near the Kellogg Ranch, where his dog gave him up under some sacks. The men cuffed the drunkard. Sheriff Hamill is notorious for sending his undermen off to their daily duties with this reminder. Keep sober. Just because you wear the star of a deputy, don't imagine you are commissioned to soak up all the booze in sight. He would further admonish, Be courteous. If you are insulted by a bully in the office, don't lick him there. It is bad for the reputation of the office. There are plenty of dark alleys. Back at the jail, Z. Rosa the driver that spotted a young man matching Ben Elliott's description with a coat but no shirt heading toward the San Francisco aqueduct before doubling back toward the city is poking around, hoping to get a look at the suspect. The reporters, learning of Rosa's relevance, press him for the details of his encounter. Rosa was rebuffed by Sheriff Hamill when he undertook to tell his story. But upon the insistence of others who heard the statement, Hamill consented to take him into the jail for a look at the boy prisoner. Not, however, before he had taken Mr. Rosa into his private office for a secret conference. 
No one was permitted to be present with the sheriff and Rosa when they interviewed Elliot. And when they emerged from the jail, Rosa said briefly that he could not say that Elliot was the boy he had seen. The boy I saw wore a stiff hat that was too large for his head. It was down almost around his ears, and he wore a light coat and a pair of corduroy trousers. His shoes were brown, and I think they were low, although I cannot be positive about that. Contending he is not the young man witnessed by Rosa attempting to conceal his shirtlessness, Sheriff Hamill doubles down on his assertion that Ben Elliott is innocent of Anna's murder. Next time on L.A. 1909. Torn and blood bespattered, a black and white shirt, probably the most important clue in the mystery of the murder. Oh my God, me? Kill my little baby, me kill my Annie. Who would say that? The chief danger in this case is not that the murderer may escape. The danger is that some innocent person may be hanged by a mob. L.A. 1909 is an independent podcast, written, directed, performed, and produced by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes. It also helps to comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you are listening. And follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Music, courtesy of Project Gutenberg Audio. Piano rolls by Scott Joplin and Claude Debussy. Other music performed by John E. Marino.